I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Today, so last week we finished our uh, series in Ephesians. And, you know, typically what I try to do is move between the Old Testament and the New Testament and back and forth when I preach. And so before I get back to the Old Testament, we'll be in Proverbs, um, we're going to do a short series in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. So I recently, uh, this week, got done reading a bedtime story to Willa. Uh, and you are probably all familiar with it. It's called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Not the best uh, bedtime story. Uh, I mainly read it just to have something to read while she fell asleep. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so I got done reading it. And, and the story, right, it, it centers around this man named Ichabod Crane uh, and this mythical figure called the Headless Horseman, right? So the Headless Horseman uh, is this guy who rides around on his horse and he holds his head or a jack-o'-lantern uh, in his arms. And so not to give any away any spoilers, but Ichabod Crane is eventually pursued by the Headless Horseman and he's never heard from again. Uh, but in the story, Ichabod Crane, he's a school teacher and he has very little possessions. He doesn't have much to his name at all. At one point, in the book, we learn that his only possessions include a couple of shirts, some scarves, a couple of pair of the colonial stockings, you know, uh, some corduroy long johns, a rusty razor, and a couple of books. So he doesn't have much to his name, but Ichabod Crane, it's ironic because he has like this insatiable appetite for like riches and pleasure. It's kind of, it's funny, he'll be like walking by these fields of corn and barley, and like he's just imagining what it'd be like to eat all like all this food that comes from these fields, these pumpkins, the delicacy of like apple pies from apples growing on the trees, and, and the sweetness of pumpkin pie from these pumpkins. Uh, in fact, he he tries to marry like this really rich young girl named uh, Katrina in the story. And he, he's trying to compete with this uh, other guy and everything. And he tries to compete with her so that he can inherit this large estate that has all these geese that he wishes that he could eat and these ducks and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's really ironic. Uh, in the end, though, Ichabod Crane, he's, he's pursued by the headless horseman and, and really anti, in an anticlimactic way, he's pursued, but we don't know what happens. Right? He fall, we find out that Ichabod Crane falls off his horse while the headless horseman is pursuing him, but we don't know what happens after that. Uh, he just kind of disappears. Uh, and all the townsfolk are like trying to figure out what happened to him. They come up with all these different stories. So no, no one knows what happened at all. It's really actually kind, kind of anticlimactic. But, but I think that, yeah, I wasn't, I was hoping it'd be a lot scarier. It really wasn't. Um, but it, I think Ichabod, Crane is a great foil to what we read here in, in chapter 5. Ichabod was poor, yes, but he was full of himself. He was full of himself. In his mind, he was rich. He was the opposite, actually, of what Jesus teaches here. What, what Jesus teaches here in Matthew chapter 5 and in the Sermon on the Mount turns the world on its head. 
It's counter-cultural and it's, it's otherworldly. It doesn't belong to this world. Ichabod Crane is how we all are by nature. We think we flourish the most when we seek and when we get what we want. That's when we flourish the most. But Jesus teaches us that true flourishing happens when we are most empty. True flourishing doesn't happen when we are full, but when we are empty. Not full of ourselves, but emptied of ourselves. Truly, spiritually poor. So what I'm going to do, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and this is probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, and I'm going to break it down into three parts, and I've summarized those three parts into a sentence. And the sentence is this. Jesus the King teaches His people the meaning of true flourishing. Jesus the King teaches His people the meaning of true flourishing. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus the King teaches His people the meaning of true flourishing. So the first important element that we must understand is that Jesus is teaching about a new kingdom and He is its King. Jesus is teaching about a new kingdom and He is its King. As I said uh, before, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly popular. In fact, arguably, it's, it might be the most popular part of the whole Bible. I mean, even non-believers who don't know the Bible at all are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And if not the Sermon on the Mount, or more than the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. This, the Sermon on the Mount might be the most written about part of the Bible in history. In fact, the Beatitudes were cherished by none other than Mahatma Gandhi. Now Gandhi was not a Christian, but he said, the Sermon on the Mount went straight to my heart. It is the sermon which has endeared Jesus to me. Because of this, Gandhi considered Jesus to be one of the greatest teachers of humanity. 
But therein lies the problem. Because for many people, Jesus was a good man. In fact, some might even say He was a perfect man. He was a good teacher, a good example. But the Sermon on the Mount isn't the message of a good teacher to anybody who will listen. It is the message of a king to His people. The Sermon on the Mount is the message of a king to His people. So by this point in Matthew, by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already begun His war, His conquest against sin and Satan. So in just the previous chapter, in in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, Jesus has overcome what no man has overcome before. Sin and temptation, right? Satan tempts Jesus three times, and every time Jesus overcomes Him. And then, right before the Sermon on the Mount, in in chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, we read how Jesus has been casting out demons. So, so while the cross is, yes, the ultimate defeat of sin and Satan, Jesus has already, in a sense, overcome them. So Jesus is already teaching here as the victor. What this means is that Jesus is the harbinger of a new kingdom. Jesus' central message that we see in chapter 4, verse 17, his central message of his ministry is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The conqueror of sin and Satan is here and the king of the universe has arrived on the scene. And his kingdom is And because this is a whole new kingdom, there is a whole new way to live. Now, when I was in Lesotho in Africa, uh, now eight years ago, I, I had to be careful how I lived because, not, not because of like legal stuff or like different laws, but because of things that I do here that are simply culturally inappropriate there. Uh, so if I were a girl, I'd have to wear long skirts because anything shorter than that is, is culturally offensive. But, Lesotho is also where I met Mallory, but I couldn't be seen alone with Mallory because if people were to see me alone with Mallory, that automatically they're thinking there's promiscuity. It's promiscuous. So I had to be careful. And, and what's funny is, Lesotho is called the kingdom of Lesotho. So, uh, so because I was in another kingdom, I had to learn how to live in that kingdom. Every Christian, since the coming of Christ, has occupied a different kingdom in which they live. So from Israel in Jesus' day, to Ephesus, to Rome, to Africa, to China, to America, every single true follower of Christ does not belong to an earthly kingdom any longer, but to an otherworldly kingdom. This kingdom is truly otherworldly. It does not look like earthly kingdoms. It turns the ways of this world on its head. And what this means is that as subjects of this king, we must learn a whole new way to live. We're not born into this world knowing how to operate in this new kingdom. We must learn and relearn and learn over and over and over again what it means to live in this new 
kingdom. D.A. Carson wrote that the kingdom of God speaks of God's authority mediated through Christ. Therefore, it speaks equally of our wholehearted allegiance to that authority. So our our purpose as, as citizens of this kingdom is not to please man or to try and establish the kingdom of Christ here and now. It is to please our king and to let him establish his own kingdom in the way that he sees fit. He sees fit. And the reason that this is important is because this kingdom has always been countercultural. It has rubbed against every single culture and every single nation in which it has existed. It will always look strange to those on the outside. Often it will be scandalous. Sometimes it it beats our modern rationality into submission because we can't figure out how it makes sense. Therefore, it is not easy. It comes with a cost. So when we read these Beatitudes or we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, it comes from the mouth of the one who has all authority and demands total submission. It's not good advice on a way to live. This is the king giving his orders to his people. The thing about it though is that these are not miserable subjects. These subjects are the ones that are truly blessed. This leads to our next point. Jesus, the king, teaches his people. We read that in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus sits down and he assumes the role of a teacher. The time in my life when I have been in the most trouble was from first to sixth grade. When I was in elementary school, I got in trouble a lot. I mean, a lot. I went to Catholic school, uh, and it's not, it was, Catholic school was kind of straight, but I mean, I was a, I, I broke the rules a lot. I mean, I, 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 sixth grade, I'm this 12 year old kid, I had in school suspension at Catholic school. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty bad. Uh, anyway, uh, so my worst behavior, my worst punishments were in elementary school. I would often have to write lines, and I would often have to go to the principal's office. And let me tell you about the principal's office. I, I haven't been in that office in like 20-something years, but I can still picture it in my mind's eye. He had this, principal had this slick back hair. You know, he wore like a gold watch. He had this snake that had been like preserved in like this glass orb. Man, it was intimidating. You don't mess around with Mr. Shomer. Like, you don't mess with that guy. So it wasn't just the fact that he was the principal that made it serious. It's where you were. It's where you are. And so that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus, it says, went up on a mountain to teach. That's why we call this, what? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching on a mountain. And so mountains in both Jewish and ancient thought had these like huge levels of significance because... 
Mountains are where heaven meets earth. Physically, mountains, what? Like they touch the sky, but it's symbolically where heavens meet the earth. So in Greek mythology, Mount Olympia is where Zeus dwells. It's where the gods are said to dwell. dwell. Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive the covenant from God and to, to give it to Israel. So this imagery is significant because Jesus is teaching in the place where heaven is said to meet earth. Think about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is occupying the space between heaven and earth. So He is not only the harbinger of a new kingdom, He is the harbinger of a new covenant. Jesus is the new and greater Moses who gives instruction to His people on how to live. Jesus sits in the place of Moses to tell His people how they are to live before God. But unlike Moses, who has to receive His instruction from God, Jesus' teaching originates with Himself. Here's, Here's one reason why the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the best and most well-known passage in all of Scripture is that Jesus is not only the new and greater Moses, He's the new and greater Solomon. If you've ever read through the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly realize how easy it is to understand. It's very simple. You don't need to read a book. You don't need to read a commentary. You don't have to listen to a preacher to understand what Jesus is saying. It's profoundly simple. And in this way, it's exactly like Proverbs, right? Solomon wrote Proverbs. You don't need a commentary or a handbook to read Proverbs. They are incredibly simple and easy to understand. But just like Proverbs, the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly profound. If you've ever tried to ford a river, you know what it's like to to be deceived by a river. Because in one moment, you're standing in, in ankle-deep water. You're at your ankles, and you look. You can see the bottom, usually of rivers, and you look, and you're like, this is the same depth. But when you step, you all of a sudden find yourself waist-high or either falling over in your uh, waders and getting water filled up in your waders. A recent experience of mine. That's exactly how the Sermon on the Mount is. You can wade through it ankle-deep. You can wade through it ankle deep, but if you take any additional steps, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And what's more, just like Proverbs, the Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to flourish. Solomon in Proverbs is a father writing to his son. And he's not only concerned about his son's obedience, but he's concerned about his son's happiness. He's concerned about his son's well-being. He's concerned about his satisfaction and his contentment with life. And, and the world, the world says blessedness and flourishing comes through self-gratification. Get what you want as soon as you can get it. There's a song by a pop singer right now, and she says, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. 
She's rich and she can get anything she wants. And that's exactly how the message that our world sends is that we believe that we achieve blessedness through getting what we want and often through achieving it through any necessary means. But the king's definition of blessedness and flourishing is altogether different from that. Jesus invites us to ponder and to consider what it means to truly be blessed. So what does Jesus mean when He says, blessed are, blessed are those? Some translations of the Bible might substitute blessedness for happiness, or happy, so happy are, happy are. So, But the I want to say that while in bless, blessedness includes happiness, it can't be reduced to happiness. Being blessed includes being happy, but it's not just being happy. So what is blessedness? Blessedness is to find approval. To be blessed means to flourish under the conviction by faith that God is for you in Christ. That is the foundation of blessedness. To be convinced by faith that God is for you in Christ. To quote D.A. Carson again, since this is God's universe, there can be no higher blessing than to be approved by God. We must ask ourselves whose blessing we diligently seek. If God's blessing means more to us than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or of colleagues, no matter how influential, then the Beatitudes will speak to us very personally, deeply. So there are two things that I want to note here before we move on. First, the Beatitudes are not promises. Promises go like this. If you do this, then I will do this. If you clean your room, then you can play your games. No, no, these are not promises. These are, these are more like invitations. Jesus is inviting us into a way of being that is itself the blessing. But secondly... The blessings come before any command. It's fitting that the Sermon on the Mount starts with blessing. God's command to Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth follows blessing. He blesses them. Uh, Israel, get, giving Israel the law, the law comes after blessing Israel and calling them His people. And, and the church, right? God gives grace and blessing to His church before He ever tells them anything to do. So grace always precedes commands and obedience. Blessing always precedes obedience. The King blesses His people and invites them to live in this blessed state of His kingdom. So this leads to our final point. King teaches his people the meaning of true flourishing. The meaning of true flourishing. Who are who are the blessed? 
Who are these who are truly blessed in the kingdom of Christ? I don't know how familiar many of you are with Instagram, but it's another social media platform, and it centers around posting videos or pictures, right? There's not like a, there is commenting, but it's not like Facebook or anything. It's really the picture is the centerpiece. And the reason Instagram is so popular is because it gives you a glimpse into other people's lives that make you think, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Like, their lives are so awesome. I want to do that. I wish I could live like that. Honestly, I hate Instagram because I've looked at it before and I followed like woodworking accounts and the things that they're able to do make me feel so dumb about the stuff I do in woodworking. Like it's so good. It just makes me not want to ever do woodworking again because I'm not nearly as good as this person. So, uh, of course, the only pictures that you see are people traveling to the best places. The only pictures you see are people with the the best photos or having the most athletic bodies or building the most amazing things. And in our hearts, we bless them because it seems that of all people, man, they are so blessed. We want to be like them. But Jesus takes our natural, worldly, fleshly understanding of blessedness and turns it completely upside down. True blessedness, true flourishing, it's the idea behind this word blessedness, flourishing, doesn't come with being able to travel where you want. It doesn't come with a comfortable retirement. It doesn't come with the right girl, the right guy. It comes with self-emptying. First Beatitude, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me come out and say right here that Jesus, when He lists the Beatitudes, He's not talking about different kinds of people. So He's not talking about like one type of people are poor in spirit, the other type of people mourn, the other type of people are peacekeepers. No, one is poor in spirit and... The one who is poor in spirit is the one who mourns. The one who is poor in spirit is the peacemaker. As Thomas Watson said, the Spirit of God plants in the heart a habit of all of these graces. The Spirit of God plants in the heart a habit of all of these graces. So so the the Christian is one who has all of these, should have all of these. But being poor in spirit comes first because it's the most foundational. Thomas Watson continues, Christ starts here to show that poverty of spirit is the very basis and foundation of all the other graces that follow. Till a man be poor in spirit, he cannot mourn. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be emptied of yourself. It means that you see yourself in the truest possible sense as the chief of all sinners with nothing but your sin to bring before an almighty and holy God. You are spiritually bankrupt. They, the poor in spirit, are they who see nothing in themselves but fly to mercy for sanctuary. Thomas Watson again. 
So being emptied of yourself, being poor in spirit is the beginning and the foundation of all the rest. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To self-emptied or grieved because of their own spiritual poverty, their own personal sin, and the social evil and oppression that we see in the world. There's a mourning that happens. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek does not mean being nice. Right? Nice, it should be noted, is not a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is. Kindness is. But meekness means one who is humble, gentle, and not aggressive. Listen, the world has enough aggression. The world has enough threats and it has enough violence. What it needs more of is more gentleness and more warmth that comes from the heart of Christ. The meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are they who are not content with where they are or where the world is, but who long for an increase in righteousness in their own hearts and in the world around them. A longing for those who pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. The poor in spirit are more likely to show mercy because they realize they deserve much worse than what they've been given. In fact, the poor in spirit realize they've been given worlds more and better than what they deserve. And so the merciful are not selective about who gets compassion, who receives pity, or who receives the benefit of the doubt. The merciful are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are not those who are interested in an external show of religiosity. They are concerned not just with outward correctness, but with inward holiness. They want their hearts and their thoughts and their lives to align. Anytime our thoughts and our lives or our hearts and our thoughts or hearts and our lives don't align, it's called hypocrisy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are not personality types. I, by personality, am what's called a peacemaker. And what peacemakers do is they don't want to rock the boat. They want to avoid conflict. That's not peacemakers. Peacemakers know Proverbs 27.5 well. It says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Peacemakers are the ones who strive for reconciliation no matter how far they must go, even if it means rebuking someone that they love. They're not people pleasers, but workers of harmony. Finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I do not believe that Christians currently in America are persecuted, especially compared to how Christians are persecuted in North Korea and Iran. There is a spirit of antagonism, but that's different from persecution. But I wonder if we were persecuted, how many of us would call it blessed? How many of us would truly rejoice at social ostracization? How many of us would be glad at mockings and name callings? Being misrepresented. How many of us would praise God when we are legally disadvantaged? Jesus says, blessed are you if you are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed. Jesus the King teaches his people the meaning of true flourishing. I hope you realize by now how difficult it is for us to truly consider these things blessed. In fact, when these happen, when we are this way, we don't usually feel blessed. To be hungry and thirsty doesn't make you feel blessed. To mourn doesn't feel blessed. That's the radical nature of what Jesus, is te- Jesus teaches. You may not feel blessed when you are poor in spirit. You may not feel blessed when you mourn or when you hunger and thirst, but you are blessed. The king pronounces you blessed. Are you? So what we have here in the Beatitudes is, is present blessedness. You are blessed and also future consolation. You're currently blessed, right? Eternal life is not something in the future. Eternal life is something that Christians participate in now. Jesus says that He came that we may have life and have it to the full and to have that now. So eternal life isn't just about a duration of time that we'll spend in heaven. Eternal life is about knowing a person. Eternal life is about knowing Christ. And yet there is a future promise. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? The kingdom of heaven belongs to you now if you are poor in spirit, but blessed are those who mourn because you will be comforted. Your mourning will turn, turn to comfort. Blessed are the meek because you might lose now. You might lose your battles now, but one day you're going to inherit the whole earth. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because while you struggle with contentment now, one day you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you when you show mercy to people now, mercy to people who don't deserve it, because one day you're going to receive mercy. Blessed are pure in heart, one day you'll see God. Future consolation. But ultimately, the reason we who are in Christ are blessed is because He has achieved it all for us. We are in spiritual poverty, so Christ, the Son of God, became poor in spirit for us. 
we are spiritually bankrupt, so Christ, the Son of God, mourned for us and carried our sorrows and mourned with us. We are selfish and murder one another to get our own way, but Christ became meek to rescue us. We hunger and we thirst after sin and unrighteousness, but Christ, the Son of God, who knew no hunger, became hungry and thirsty to give us His righteousness. We are unmerciful and judge others for their sin, but Christ showed us mercy when we were least deserving. We are hypocritical and impure in heart, but Christ lived a life pure from sin in every way only to die for the impurity of our lives. We are violent and we rip apart God's creation by our sin, but Christ was violently ripped apart to heal it and to make peace. It is because of our sin that Christ was nailed to the cross but He bore persecution to set us free. Christ is the only one who lived the Beatitudes perfectly. The Beatitudes ultimately are about a person. They're about knowing a person. And the more we know Christ, the more we become like Him. Humble, lowly, gentle, merciful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a kind king and a merciful savior. Lord, how we want this to be true of our lives. But Lord, how we struggle. Because we often still, even after knowing you for decades, we can look at the world and think, blessed are those who have, blessed are the rich, blessed are those who take it easy, blessed are those who are comfortable. God, we, our hearts often go after all of these things, but you show us mercy after mercy. And so, Lord Jesus, make these realities true of us. Lord, at the bottom of it all, help us to see ourselves as we truly are, as spiritually bankrupt as nothing apart from You, possessing nothing, owning nothing, having nothing, knowing nothing apart from You. Sinners before Your holiness. Lord, that that we might walk this earth as poor in spirit, as mourners, as meek and merciful and hungry and thirsty, as making peace, as persecuted, not, not, Lord, because, because we're after riches or comforts or anything, but because we're after You. But because we want more of You. Because we want to be more like our King who is all of these things for us and more. So Lord Jesus, I praise You that this is not some standard we have to live up to, but an invitation that we get to participate in. By your grace. So we ask this of you, Lord Jesus, our King, that you would make these realities true of us more and more and more, that we might truly flourish, be truly blessed. 
in your name that we pray. Amen.